Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. One time I had the privilege of uh, going to Washington, D.C. and seeing the sights on the mall and all of that. And we walked over to the south side of the White House and we were standing at the south gate looking over the south lawn. And it was so amazingly beautiful and impressive. It's hard to describe. Those of you that have been there could testify to that. Um, And here it is, the, the house that is the seat of power, not only for the free world, but probably, if truth were told, for the whole world. And I don't know, as I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, how in the world can the guy that lives in that house understand the world I live in? I mean, he doesn't know what it's like to go through the drive-thru at Popeye's when the girl at the window is having a bad day. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Does he drive over in Texas and... When he gets back, he gets all these tolls in the mail and then forgets to pay them and they double them? No. He doesn't have to deal with that because when he gets on the highway, they clear the highway. If he wants Popeye's, they bring it to him. Or better yet, they probably cook it there. I was thinking, how cool would that be? You could get the Popeye's people to cook food in your own home, right? (laughs) Um, You know, he never goes to the grocery store and picks up the meat and looks at it and goes, ooh, we can't afford that and puts it back. You know, he doesn't go shopping. So how can a guy, and now look, I'm not saying he doesn't have troubles. I'm not saying he doesn't have struggles. He certainly does, and his are way bigger than mine. They're just not the same as mine. And then I thought, you know, going one beyond that, I thought about the Lord, and I thought, how, he's so much bigger, so much po- more powerful, the God of creation. How could the God of all creation possibly identify with my life? And that's important to me because when I go through hard things and when I go through struggles and when I, my heart gets broken and I have trials and I feel defeated and I feel demoralized and I feel isolated and alone, the one thing I need to know the most, I would prefer for God to take my trouble away, but if He doesn't take my trouble away, I want Him to at least understand what they are and I want Him to at least be with me in them. And, and, and can a God of the universe really do that? And then I remember Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest. He, of course, is using that high priest as a title for Jesus. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. And that word sympathize means sim with and Pasco, to suffer, to suffer with. We don't have a God, we don't have a Lord who can't suffer with, and then he uses the word weaknesses, and that means our infirmities, our hurts, our heartaches, our limitations. In other words, Jesus is able to identify with all of those things, but one who has been tempted, and that word can also mean tried. Remember in James, he uses the word, how blessed are those who have encountered various trials knowing that the testing of their faith. Same word is tempted, same word used here. He's tried in every way. He's gone through all the heartaches, all the hurts, all the stuff we go through, and yet without sin. And so that's encouraging to me. Because he's gone through the same stuff because he's lived in the same world I live in. And because he's lived in the same world I live in, when I go through it, I know 
he's gone through it and he understands and he's with me and he identifies with me. And that's powerful. And that's the message that I get emerging from John chapter five, six and seven as we walk through these things. And, and if you back up and you look at it, you see that in every case, Jesus is experiencing the same things we experience. I mean, it starts in John chapter 5. Jesus is walking into the temple at Jerusalem. He's by the pool of Bethesda, by the sheep gate. And there's a guy, there's a lot of people there who have infirmities and they're waiting on the water to be stirred. And, you know, uh, there's this one guy that's been there forever. Jesus walks over and says, do you want to get well? The guy says, I should, you know, I can't get in the water before every Everybody else. And so Jesus heals him. And then he word gets out and the Jewish leaders get furious. They're angry because Jesus did it on the Sabbath of all things, you know. He broke their rules. He healed a man, but he broke their rules. Listen, have you ever been criticized for doing the right thing? I mean, consider, think how infuriated Jesus must have been when they did that. And then he tries to explain himself. You know, the Father's working all the time, even on the Sabbath, and I'm working. And when they heard that, they got so mad because he had identified himself with God that now they wanted to kill him. And look, I've made people mad before. <laughs> it's kind of part of my job, I guess. But not, I don't know that I've ever made anybody mad enough to want to kill me, not that I know of. But... Have you ever felt threatened? Uh, imagine how vulnerable Jesus must have felt. When he got back to Galilee, first thing he hears is that John the Baptist, his friend, his co-worker, his, the one who prepared the way for his ministry, has been beheaded by Herod Agrippa on the whim of some schoolgirl who would dance a dance for this corrupt and perverted leader. She wanted John the Baptist's head, and so he gave it to her. John is dead. Jesus goes up onto the mountain because he needs to grieve because of the loss that he's experienced there. And you think about that. Have you ever lost someone you really love? I'll tell you something. As you go through life, that's going to happen with greater frequency. And what's going to happen is life begins to take away more than it gives back in that regard. But consider how sad Jesus must have been. He tries to retreat from the crowd by spending time processing his loss, but here comes 5,000 people, and he, he pulls away from his own grief so that he ministers to them. And then the hour grows late, so he feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish to set up the ministry and the sermon that he's going to preach the next day on the bread of life. And then finally, uh, he puts the disciples in a boat, and he tells them to head out and um, to, to go across the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Storm comes up. They're sort of rowing against the wind. And uh, about three in the morning, Jesus comes walking on the water. So he's, he's been in ministry all day. He's been grieving all evening. And now he's up all night rescuing his disciples. And then the very next day, that same crowd he'd fed the night before, find him, show up, and he begins to minister again. And I think, have you ever been so tired at the beginning of a day that you didn't know how you would get through it? Because you know those appointments are already lined up, and you're asking yourself, how can I do this? And think how exhausted Jesus must have been. And... Uh, then he tried to show that crowd, you know, the stuff you're after is not going to last. You know, you're going to eat this bread, you're going to hunger again. What you need is, is to take in the spiritual food that I have for you so that you'll never hunger, so that instead of always wanting to feel full, you'll be fulfilled. 
And, and the crowd realized right away, he's not going to feed us again. And, and he's talking about eating his body and all of this stuff. And they loved the sermon so much that they all just left. And I thought about that, you know, as a spiritual leader, what it would feel like to watch all of these chairs just suddenly go vacant. Have you ever felt abandoned? The people that you were counting on, the people you were pouring into, the people who were pouring into you just left? Well, some of you have done that, seen that with your families. Envision how abandoned Jesus must have felt. And then we come to chapter 7, and it's filled with even more conflict. Starts in verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. That word walking means living, dwelling, doing ministries in Galilee. For he's unwilling to go to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so, you know, this goes back to that episode with the guy that he healed at Bethesda and the fact that he had identified with God. They wanted to kill him and they haven't given up on that. And so he can't go to Judea. It's down in the south. Galilee's in the north. Samaria's in the middle, right? And so he's staying in Galilee, and he's ministering there. Uh, then comes the Feast of the Jews. The Feast of Booths was near. The Feast of Booths uh, was also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of the three pilgrimage feasts along with uh, uh, Passover and Pentecost. And the Feast of Passover and Pentecost were both in the spring. Uh, uh, you know, we would identify it with Easter uh, Passover with Easter 50 days later, Pentecost. And so um, it was sometime March, April for those two feasts. But the Feast of Booths was in the fall, about six months later. So six months have passed. And this was the feast that occurred after the gathering of the harvest. Moses had instituted it. The people were to... Uh, they were to build these little shelters in their, in, in, out in the yard or in the lawn or in the woods, wherever. And they were going to live in those shelters, like a tent or a teepee or whatever, for about eight days. And during that eight-day period, they were to remember the sufferings that the Jews had had in their journey through the wilderness so that they wouldn't take for granted all of the blessings of God. It was a very important feast to them. Somewhat like our Thanksgiving festival. It was after the harvest to remind them of humility. And so that feast is going on in Jerusalem. And typically all Jewish males were required to go to that. Um, if you lived within a certain region, and Galilee was just beyond that, so it was somewhat optional. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you're doing. So Matthew chapter 13 verse 55 tells us that Jesus had four stepbrothers. Their names were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude. Now, James and Jude would later become followers of Jesus and key players in the early church. James actually became the head of the church of Jerusalem and wrote the book of James. Jude, of course, wrote the book of Jude. Those were Jesus' stepbrothers, okay? But at this time, in this moment, they didn't believe in Jesus, and yet they're telling him, you know, go to, go to Jerusalem and, and do that. And, and so this creates kind of a thorny question for those of us who sort of break these things apart. What, what was their motivation, you know? Were they intentionally encouraging Jesus to walk into a death trap? I don't think that would be the case. And then others say, well, I think that they were, as non-believers, kind of poking fun, just stirring the pot, you know, uh, in a kind of a half-hearted, disbelieving way. Maybe they were genuinely trying to help, but it demonstrates they really didn't understand who their brother was. They thought they were trying to help him accomplish his goal, and they thought his goal was just to be something big. 
You know, gain fame, gain importance. And so here's what they said. First, you need a bigger market, you know. You got to get out of these small fishing villages in Galilee and got to get down there to Jerusalem where everything's happening. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, right? And secondly, you need higher exposure. Verse 4, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Um, so you, you guys, uh, you, need, you need to get a PR guy. You need to raise your profile. And finally, you need to spotlight your talent. Notice it says, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Notice it says, if you do these things. That's interesting because the brothers had apparently either heard of or seen him do these things, but they weren't sure that they were really things to be done or seen. And maybe they were saying in a way, hey, if you really want to get famous, go down to Jerusalem and take your magic show with you. And man, don't forget that water to wine thing. Boy, that was powerful. You know, and that thing you're doing where you're making people think other people are healed, be sure you do a lot of that. And, you know, if you can pull off another one of those feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves, two fish, man, you want to include that in your show. Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Imagine that your family doesn't even believe in you. Have you ever felt like nobody understands you? that people don't really believe in you. Think how lonely Jesus must have felt. Verse 6, so he said to them, my time's not yet here, but your time is always opportune. In other words, you guys can go whenever you want. I, there's some things I, 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 it's not time for yet. And that word is not chronos time, it's kairos time. It's not, it's not the measurement of time like a watch. It's, it's the appropriateness of time like kairos. He, Jesus knew that if he goes into Jerusalem and does the whole miracle signs and wonders things, that those people are going to want to make call him the Messiah. They're going to want to put him on a platform. And then those same people who are going to uh, praise his name and hail his presence as the coming Messiah, five days later, they're going to cry out, crucify him, and he's going to the cross. Now, Jesus was going to go to the cross. It just wasn't time yet. And so about six months later, those events actually did happen, but not yet, not now, because now he still has stuff to do, people to teach and things to show. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. He went on his own terms. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, no, nah, no, nah, on the contrary, he leads people astray. You know, when people talk about you, they tend to distort the facts or make stuff up. And you know what the hardest part of being talked about is? Being misunderstood and not being able to correct it. You know, we'll have guys on the staff and in ministry, sometimes you live a bit of a fishbowl, you know, and people sometimes talk about you and sometimes they say things that are too nice that you don't really deserve. And sometimes they say things that aren't nice that you don't really deserve, but that's just the nature of the game. And sometimes the guys on the team will get upset. You know, this person said this or that person said that. And we always remind them that in ministry, two things are required. You got to be tight lipped and thick skinned. That's what Jesus was. All these people are talking about him. Have, have you ever been talked about? If you've never been talked about, you haven't made it to the eighth grade. Because <laughs> that's when it's going to happen. Imagine how misunderstood Jesus must have felt. 
Verse 14, but when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. So he begins to open himself up. And the Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? This is just a son of a carpenter from some backwater Galilee town. But you know, he's teaching from the book he wrote. Why are they so surprised by it? Verse 16, Jesus answered and said to them, my teaching is not mine. But his who sent me, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks of himself seeks his own glory. And this is the thing his brothers didn't understand. This is the thing the Jews didn't understand. He was not seeking his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. It's not me and it's not my words and it's not my teaching that I'm proclaiming to you. It's the teaching and the words of the Father he's saying. And because of that, by virtue of that, I'm not trying to glorify myself. I'm trying to glorify the Father, the one who sent me. He's true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. He speaks, if he, if he, if he speaks from himself, he seeks his own glory, seeing the glory of the one who sent him. He's true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. And then Jesus addresses the elephant in the room. And he sort of, you know, I love the courage of Jesus. He, he doesn't do this southern thing where he pretends that the problem isn't there. He takes it head on. Verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Look at this. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, when the crowd heard this, they, they thought, he's lost his mind. I mean, he's attacking our leaders and accusing them of plotting and murder, and they immediately jumped to the defense of their leaders, which, by the way, that's a tendency of human nature. When you identify yourself, put yourself under some leader, it is the, it is the immediate tendency to defend that leader, and we need to be careful with that. We need to be careful about being too quick to go to the defense of leaders who aren't what they always present themselves to be. And when you think about politics, you need to consider that. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? It always amazes me how ignorant the crowd can be. <laughs> They're dumb as stumps. You know, the fact that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus was the worst kept secret in Jerusalem. Everybody knew it. But the crowd somehow was so obtuse that they didn't even understand it. Of course the Jewish leaders wanted him dead. And you know what they said? You must be demonic. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been slandered? Consider how hurt Jesus must have been when the very crowd, he was, he's trying to free them from the slavery and tyranny of the Jewish system of legalism and the totalitarian oppression that they're under. And he's saying to them, come to me and, and I'll give you grace and mercy. It's not about you. It's not about what you do. It's not about your performance. I'm going to go to the cross and satisfy the justice of God on the cross. And when you come to me, you come to me in belief. And when you believe, you're healed and you're saved. And yet the crowd is so defensive of their leaders at that moment they say he's demonic. Think how that would make you feel. Jesus said, I did one deed and you all marvel. Verse 22, for this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. The Jews always like to pull everything back to Moses. He's like, no, 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 no. Circumcision didn't start with Moses. It started with Abraham, the fathers, right? 
And so he pushes it back to that. And on the Sabbath, look at this, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? He's saying, I healed a man on the Sabbath and the Jewish leaders, you know, lost their minds. But you circumcise on the Sabbath and nobody bats an eye. Don't judge according to appearances. It's not external stuff, but judge with righteous judgment. And Jesus is destroying the absurdity of their ridiculous legalistic system. It's crumbling before their very eyes. And, you know, it's funny when you watch the crowd. Same crowd just called him demonic is now rolling around to his side. They're, the crowd blows like a, like a Walmart bag in the wind, you know. And they're just looking for something to get stuck on, which, by the way, is why we don't follow the crowd, that's why it's so important to know who you are. Young people, know who you are and know who you are in Christ so that when you walk into the crowd, you don't look around and say, I don't know what I should be doing, so I'm going to do what everybody else does. I don't know who I am, so I'm going to be who they are. And you create this patchwork sense of self where you quilt your identity into the quilt of what is most commonly seen around you. Instead of understanding who you are, you walk into that same crowd and you go, I'm not like him, I'm not like her, I'm not like her, I'm not like her, there's somebody like me. And those are, my, those are my brothers in Christ. The bag's going to blow like a Walmart bag. I mean, the crowd's going to blow around like a Walmart bag. Don't follow them. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, verse 25, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Wait a minute. Look, it's so frustrating. They're like, isn't this the guy that the Jewish leaders are trying to kill? Look back up at verse 20. Jesus just said, you're trying to kill me. And they blew a gasket and said, uh, you're demonic. Is, do they know he, he's trying to be killed or not? You know? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. Mark that, because that's the party line. Verse 28, then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I'm from. You know, I really think that the Jewish leaders already knew that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. Because you see, they have the problem of the wise men. And the wise men showed up 30 years prior to that. And you can't convince me for a second that they've forgotten that. That there was an unusual birth in Bethlehem 30 years earlier. And now there's a man doing miraculous things who happens to be 30 years old. And maybe they haven't fully connected the dots, but you know there's a splinter in the back of their head that creates this confusion and doubt that maybe these two people are the same guy. And so when Jesus looks at them, he, he says to them, you both know me and know where I'm from. And I don't think he said that to the people. I think he said it to them. And he's... Not just know me, but know where I, why I'm here. I've, and he says, and, uh, I, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. 
And you know what he's saying? This isn't about where I live, it's about who I represent. And suddenly the crowd swings back toward Jesus and the Jewish leaders felt themselves losing control. Verse 31 says, many of the multitude believed him. So in verse 32, the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. But skip down to verse 37. Now on the last day, this is the eighth day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Notice the whole focus. His focus never shifted. The whole focus was on the needs of the people. No matter how hurt he was, Jesus never moved away from that message of hope. He never got defensive. He didn't sink into despair. He didn't wither like some frail flower under pressure. Years ago, uh, Chuck Swindoll wrote this book called Hand Me Another Brick. It's the story of the life of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's assignment was to build a wall around Jerusalem. But when he got there, there was all kinds of opposition and people were ridiculing the work and they were opposed to the work and threatening the people doing the work with violence and all these other things. And and Swindoll, by walking us through Nehemiah in that book, makes a, a great point. He said, at no point did Nehemiah ever stop the work to address the critics. He just kept doing what God called him to do and said, hand me another brick. You got Tobias and Sanballat on the wall going, if a fox jumps on this wall, it'll fall down. You guys don't know what you're doing. Hand me another brick. We're going to get an army up and we're going to stop you guys. Hand me another brick. And he just keeps building the wall. And I try to remember that when I go through hurts and heartaches, and and I try to remember that when I'm misunderstood and I'm frustrated, and I try to remember that when people say things that may or may not be true, and I try to remember, just hand me another brick, let's keep doing what God called us to do. Hand me another brick, but don't throw it at the guy, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah? You think you could say that with a fat lip? Put it on the wall. That's what Jesus did. He just kept putting it on the wall. No matter what kind of abuse they would throw his way, he kept loving them. And when your heart is is in tune with the heart of Jesus, it's hard not to follow him. It's hard to reject him. Verse 40, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, they were saying, certainly this is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. So it's come to a whole other level. But then watch this. They came back to the question of heritage Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Now, where did the crowd get this idea that the Messiah wouldn't come from Galilee? You see, here's the point. The average Jew would not have known where the Messiah was supposed to be born. You're like, how do you know? Well, because when the wise men showed up in Matthew chapter 2, they said, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and we've come to worship him. And the Bible says that Herod and the entire city of Jerusalem was thrown in an uproar. Because all of the royal officials had no idea where Jesus was supposed to be born. They had to call in the scribes and the scholars. And the scholars and the scribes had to blow the dust off the old scrolls and look through the prophets until they found Micah 5.2. When they found Micah 5.2, they said, oh yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Now, if Herod and his retinue didn't know that, then what makes you think the average guy on the street would know that? My point is that this idea was not widely known. This thing was staged. This is the talking point like some modern slanted yellow journalism. It's happened 
today as well. Here's an example. Maybe you've seen this clip. Uh, watch this. Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, to is to serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso, Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we are concerned about someone trying to be responsible, one-sided news stories, plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media, moral alarming. Some media outlets publish the same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 Do you get the point? This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. It's almost as if they're reading from a script, isn't it? And you wonder who wrote that script. But that's exactly what the Jews were doing to Jesus. The script was, no matter how convincing He is, no matter how loving and how authentic and how transparent and how divine His teaching and His words, always come back around to the fact that He's a Galilean and not one of us. And look how often it's repeated in the text. He already mentioned it in verse 27. They mentioned it again in verse 41. They repeat it again in verse 42. Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? When the SWAT team that was sent out to arrest Jesus came back, they didn't bring Jesus back. And they said, where is He? Why didn't you arrest Him? And they're like, man, we wanted to. We tried to. But dude, have you heard this guy? This guy talks like God. He says stuff we've never heard before. We just couldn't bring ourselves to arrest him. And they're like, they, they lose their minds again. They're like, you're not one of them, are you? Have you become a follower? There's no Pharisee that's become a follower. And once again, verse 52, they spout the party line. They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. It's almost as if they're reading from the same script. This is a setup thing. And... And that whole thing was to undermine who Jesus was. And consider how frustrating that would make you feel if they always came back around to that, especially knowing where you were born. The Messiah will come from Bethlehem. Yes, and he did. And you're missing the whole point of who he is. But you know what I really learned from this as I read it? Here it is. Jesus knows my sorrow. He knows your sorrow. And so three quick things. First of all, whatever pain I experience, Jesus has already felt it. I wanted you to know that. Because sometimes we think God is so separated from us that He can't identify with us. And yet He lived in our world. 
Listen to Isaiah 53. This is prophetic of Jesus. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Man, that should resonate with you when you feel overlooked and left out and lonely and isolated. Whatever you're going through, he's already been through it. Secondly, whatever heartache I feel, Jesus is with me. He bears my sorrow. He carries it. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carries. I mean, I say that for those of you that are going through real heartache right now. Maybe a spouse has left, or somebody has been unfaithful, or maybe a job's been lost, or, or maybe there's a sickness involved. You need to know that you're not alone. He's with you. And then finally, whatever sickness I experienced, Jesus has already healed it. Go back one last time to Isaiah 53, verse 3. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, the second part of four, smitten of God and afflicted. Look at this. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. These were written 700 years before Jesus by Isaiah. He was pierced through for our transgressions. We know that to be on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. All the sin I ever had, all the sin I would ever do, fell upon Jesus on the cross. And he was crushed by that. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. We are healed. No matter what hurts you go through, you've already been healed. I've got a friend that I'm praying for. He's got serious stage four cancer. And we're praying for a miracle. We want God to reverse the natural order. We want Him to confound the doctors. We want it to turn around. And I've seen that kind of thing happen where the people of God get together and pray and God grants a miracle. And that's our prayer. That's what we're praying for. But if He doesn't, it's sort of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know this, that God is able to deliver us from the fire. But even if He doesn't, we're not going to bow the knee. Even if He doesn't give us that miracle... We're already healed. I'm already healed. Nothing that happens in my life, no sorrow, no hurt, no tragedy, no setback, as bad as it hurts and as terrible as it feels, I know it's all temporary. Because the day I placed my faith in Christ, I was healed. And that means I have eternity in heaven as my destination. And all the junk I go through until then is temporary and I don't go through it alone. I wanted so much to share this with you because I wanted you to hear Jesus' heart because sometimes we miss it in the words and the conflicts of His day. But those conflicts that He experienced are the same conflicts we experience, and the hurts He experienced are our hurts so that nothing we ever go through, He hasn't already been through. And you don't go through it alone, and you've already been healed. You know what? All those people I've ever prayed for, some have been healed. But all the people I've ever prayed for that were healed are now in heaven. Because no matter if he, healing on this earth is always a temporary thing. And God wants to heal us for eternity. He does that through the cross. By His stripes, we are healed. Are you healed? Do you know what it's like to be forgiven of your sin and know for certain that you have eternal life? 
If you were to die right now and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Here's what I would say. Because of Jesus, not because of me, because of Jesus, because I've been healed. And that means everything I experience in this life is temporary. Do you know Jesus? Would you like to know him today? Hey, some of you believers, sometimes when you're in the middle of that pain, it seems permanent, doesn't it? And sometimes you feel alone and sometimes you feel as if God doesn't care. All of that is a lie from the pit. And so we walk by faith. Would you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, thank you for the healing that comes through Jesus. Thank you that we do not have a God who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. And so, Father, I pray for those who are hurting right now, that they would know that you hurt like they do. I pray they would know that you're with them. And I pray that they would know what it feels like to be healed. Father, help us to remember that. I pray for those who are without Christ who can hear my voice today, that they would be healed today that they would give their life fully over to a God that loves them and knows them because he's lived in our world. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Blake's going to lead us. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.